I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling, and I'd like to welcome you to a special re-release episode of The Foss Podcast. Today we'll be airing an interview with misinformation expert Claire Wardle that we first released back in early May 2020. As the co-founder and U.S. director of First Draft, one of the world's leading nonprofits addressing the threat of mis- and disinformation, Claire Wardle has worked tirelessly to understand and combat the threat of, as she calls it, information disorder. Over the past few years, the disturbing influx of misleading information has been one of the biggest stories in American politics. The Washington Post made misinformation their word of the year in 2018, and many news outlets, including CNN and the New York Times, launched live misinformation trackers in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election. Meanwhile, major social media sites such as Twitter and Facebook have introduced slews of new measures to attempt to combat misinformation on their platforms with wildly varying success. When you mix in this onslaught of dubious information with our already polarizing political narratives, you get a recipe for vast division and unrest. Many of us on both sides of the political spectrum wonder how it's even possible that anyone could vote for the opposing side. And part of the reason for that bafflement is that our own personal narratives are formed among such vastly different flows of information, not all of it trustworthy, and some of it intentionally misleading. But in an era of sharp political divides and increasingly customized news feeds, the nature of what is fact and what is fiction couldn't be more relevant. In today's conversation, Claire walks us through the differences between misinformation and disinformation, and how and why they spread, and how we can use stories, true stories well told, to combat them. It's my pleasure to welcome Claire Wardle to the Future of Storytelling podcast. Claire, Welcome to the podcast. It's such a delight to have you here with me today. Thanks for inviting me. So you spend every day on the front lines of tackling misinformation. I'd really like to know what drives you and why is combating misinformation so important? So my background is um, I'm an academic and I'd done some research back in 2007 about user-generated content, which was people were increasingly taking photos of things that they were seeing and emailing them to organizations like the BBC. And I was really interested in what motivated people to do that and how did newsrooms cope with this influx of information that they couldn't really trust because they hadn't filmed it themselves. So I'm British and we had these terrible uh, bombings, the 7-7 bombings in 2005. And it was the first time that the BBC led with footage that had been filmed by somebody's camera phone inside the tube. And I thought, there's there's a shift coming. So I started being really interested in how do you verify material online? And it was a very niche freakish subject. Um, But then, as you can imagine, over the last five years, it's become the subject that lots of people have, have cared about. And the reason that this drives me is that I've watched this space for the last 15 years go from very occasionally you might get a hoaxer trying to push false information to now we're swimming in these rivers, these very polluted information streams. And I just keep going on to saying we can't live like this. So, so how do you and your team at First Draft go about confronting this problem? 
So we're very fortunate. We're funded to have a number of staff. We have about 17 journalists around the world who wake up every day and basically use keywords to search for information on a number of different platforms, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube. And they are monitoring, essentially, the kind of uh, content that's being shared to understand what, what aspects of that content might be misconstrued, what might be causing people's behavior to be somewhat harmful. And we make decisions about how do we work with journalists to help audiences understand these rumors and falsehoods. So we're kind of the first alert system to try and see some of this content before it causes harm. Claire, can you describe the difference between misinformation and disinformation? Disinformation is false information that the people creating it and sharing it know it's false and they're sharing it to cause harm. That is distinct from misinformation, which is also false, but the people sharing it don't realize it's false. So this could be my mom resharing something on Facebook. She doesn't know it's false and she certainly doesn't need to want to cause any harm, but she, she's been confused. And, and if we want to think about how to slow down misinformation, that's different to the kind of techniques we might use to stop disinformation. And uh, I actually also use a third category called malinformation, which is genuine information that's shared to cause harm. So for example, revenge porn, or the leaking of certain emails that the leaking of them, taking them from private to public is done to cause harm. I mean, some, if it's a whistleblower, that's it's not trying to cause harm, it's in the public interest. But if we don't think about these terms, then we can't actually think about interventions and solutions. But from the earliest days of the written word, there's always been misleading information, people putting out propaganda. Uh, what makes it so much worse or toxic today? So yes, it certainly isn't new. And as humans, we've always gossiped. It's a way that we connect with each other. We've always had white lies. As you say, we've always had propaganda. What we've never had is an ability for anyone to be a publisher in real time. And when they publish, the distribution mechanism means that it speeds across the globe in seconds. And we've never had a distribution platform that worked at speed. So the content itself isn't that different. We use the same techniques that everybody's always used. But it's the speed, it's the fact that all of us, unfortunately, are nodes sharing and pushing this content out. If none of us shared anything, we wouldn't have a problem. We're in an age now where technology is enabling us to have these incredibly convincing deep fakes, whether that's video or audio. If we had trouble discerning between things that were true and things that were intentionally misleading before, aren't we about to enter into an era that's going to be all that much more difficult when we get these really convincing deep fakes? Deep fakes are definitely something that we need to be nervous about. And I would say that I don't think that they will play a role in the 2020 election. I would argue by 2022, the technology will be so good that it will be very difficult for anybody to verify because the AI systems will become so sophisticated. The glimmer of hope is that there's a lot of very, very smart computer scientists who are working very hard on detection technology so that we would be able to tell the difference. The other thing about deep fakes is that they tend to be used against politicians and famous people. So it's easier to say, well, did Donald Trump ever really say that? But the other really terrifying thing about deepfakes is uh, a lot of this is about women whose faces or bodies get uh, put into porn films. So deepfakes is certainly a technology we need to be really concerned about. However, I do worry a little bit that we've had a lot of kind of sensational reporting around deepfakes, like headlines that scream, we'll never be able to trust anything again. 
And I would argue that that in itself is a problem because we need to be pretty responsible to say, yes, it's a concern, but there are very smart people working on it. And hopefully this will be a kind of an arms race where there's a kind of a detente when they cancel each other out. So I'm somebody who grew up believing that the World Wide Web was going to bring us together. It was going to be this incredible tool for helping to connect the global village and and remind us all of our shared humanity. But it seems that the ability of the internet to share disinformation is actually doing the opposite right now. What did I miss? What did the rest of us sort of tech utopians sort of not understand? It's a difficult question to answer because I was in your camp as well. (laughs) And I really (laughs) hoped that uh, if if the, the good information would outweigh any bad information. But I think what we didn't recognize is that the internet was always only going to reflect human nature. And in the same way as there are incredible people doing wonderful work every single day, we also have people for many different reasons who commit crimes. And people recognize that like everything in society, they could make money from it. They could harm somebody's reputation. They could just see what they could get away with. Is there something about the medium that makes it more difficult to understand what's true versus what's what's false? So as humans, we're always looking for heuristics, these mental shortcuts that help us understand and make sense of the world. So if I'm having a conversation with a group of people on the street, there are visual cues about who they are. It might be that I'm looking to see what, what how they're dressed or what words they're using or how eloquent they are. And the same is true online. But unfortunately, in the online space, everything looks the same. For example, if I'm reading the New York Times, it looks very professional versus kind of a... a it used to be the case of kind of a, a not very professional blog. But now on my Facebook feed, everything looks similarly professional. So our brains are overloaded, desperately seeking these credibility heuristics. And there are very few of them to help us make sense of that information we're seeing. What kind of misinformation are you seeing right now related to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic? Around the beginning of March, we really saw the growth firstly of uh, worried text messages about lockdowns and that the army were going to be coming out and there was going to be no food in the shops. And so we saw that initial wave and many of them were on WhatsApp and text messaging, which was was kind of uh, surprising for Western Europe and the US, although we have seen that kind of behavior in places like India and Brazil. And then the next couple of weeks, it was all about, well, if you gargle with salt water, if you hold your breath for 10 seconds, I mean, I think we all saw it, different versions of it, but kind of like 10 things you need to know about coronavirus. And then the last two to three weeks, we've seen a really worrying trend of uh, these conspiracy theories, whether it's people suggesting that 5G phone masts are causing coronavirus, whether it's people saying that this was created in a lab by Bill Gates because he wants to, you know, vaccinate everybody, wants to make it mandatory and then wants to microchip us. We're seeing these kind of conspiracies, which are... I would say pretty surprising because we're seeing them move into, we've seen celebrities and influencers talking about them. Um, We've certainly seen the President of the United States talking about some of these ideas that previously we would not have thought to be mainstream at all. So it has been a kind of a wild journey. Unfortunately, we're seeing increasing amounts of information that I think might cause real world harm. These kinds of misinformation really do have profound or or in some cases life or death implications. Can Can you give an example of that? 
this weekend, the president was talking about drinking bleach. Well, we've seen forms of that in conspiracy communities for a while. So for example, there are Facebook groups that tell mothers whose children are autistic to feed them bleach. I mean, we do see Facebook groups and communities that really recommend behaviours that are exceptionally dangerous. And so right now, we saw a spike over the weekend of people going to emergency rooms because they had ingested bleach and poisonous uh, liquids. I mean, that that in itself is, is really harmful behaviour. We're seeing many, many people now believing that this is a hoax, that the lockdown is designed by the left to keep people at home so that then we'll have to have a mail-in election in November. So we're already seeing in April kind of the planting of narratives around the safety of the election and trying to dismiss the integrity of the election. So again, all of these things are interlinked in really interesting ways. So who do you think bears responsibility for... Uh, testing the veracity of these things or or helping to uh, clear them out of our social media feeds? Is it the companies or is it the individuals? None of this is easy, but nobody, I would say, singularly deserves the kind of responsibility on this. I think the platforms have to be more transparent about their decisions and what they're taking down. Governments need to put more pressure on the platforms to say, release the data so we can study what's happening and what's not. But also as a public, we have to say, we're part of this mess. And actually, we need to hold each other to account. And that if, you know, your crazy uncle in the family email group keeps forwarding conspiracies, like you need to sit your uncle down and talk about what it means, this kind of just pollution, and what that means to our, you know, our public sphere. And I think people are just not aware. I mean, if it's something that's reaffirming your uh, filter bubble, then you don't think that's a conspiracy theory. (laughs) You think that's something everyone needs to see. So when you've kind of got a scandal-ridden White House or you've got, you know, we've in my country, we've just gone through Brexit and there was all sorts of hoo-ha about that. And so in those environments, you know, we're still reeling from the 2008 financial crisis. You know, there's a lot of reasons why people have mistrust in institutions. And so then when that's your foundation, you layer on the kind of conspiracies and falsehoods we're seeing now. And people are like, I told you so. I told you you couldn't trust those guys in D.C. And it, it fits into all of that. And so we can't understand the information in isolation to that kind of socioeconomic foundation that's actually feeding so many of these conspiracies. There's such a challenge between the people who are trying to deal in um, facts and the people who are free to deal in fictions <laughs> or, or stories that are maybe based on some facts, uh, but really they have complete reign to make stuff up. Um, how, can you talk about that challenge of, of the newsroom versus the person who's actively putting out the misinformation? Yeah, it's definitely an asymmetrical fight. So I often do trainings for newsrooms or large organizations like the WHO or CDC and say, listen, look, this is how anti-vaxxers push their messages. Very engaging visuals, lots of emotion, like bite-sized, compelling, shareable pieces of content. And this is what we create, either 800-word fact checks with no images or an 87-word, 87-page PDF with a picture of a dripping needle on the front cover. I mean, that's how the fact-based you know, organizations work. We love text. We like a lot of text. We love complexity. 
And all the psychological literature shows that actually we need to be much more simple and we need to be much more visual. I wish that we could put designers in every newsroom, in every health authority and say, you know, you know look at the flatten the curve graphic. Like the flatten the curve graphic is probably the most effective description of how we had to respond to COVID-19. And, and that was a very simple diagram. And, and that we just need to get much, much better at thinking about visual ways, visual storytelling, essentially. Visual and also emotional, right? Yeah, and the emotional part makes newsrooms feel really uncomfortable. Uh, newsrooms like distancing language and, you know, we are the gatekeepers and we're telling you what to believe. And that doesn't work in an environment where people want more authentic storytelling and they want more emotional storytelling. That's what people engage around and that's that's what drives the algorithms of all the platforms. And so we need to find a way that newsrooms can understand the use of emotion, but to do so in a way that's not sensational, to do so in a way that doesn't kind of break ethical norms. But we have to find a way to, to loosen up that, I would argue, news reporting in a way that doesn't uh, do damage to the facts. But otherwise, we're this is an asymmetrical war and the other side is definitely winning. It makes me think that there is a tremendous role for better storytellers when it comes to dissemination of news and trying to get people to trust or believe in, in fact-based information. Do you think that the business model is one of the things that's led to people's trust in news organizations being undermined or, or lessened? Uh, their understanding that they are ultimately owned by these big media conglomerates, many of them, that they're out there to make a profit. Uh, does that sort of taint the way people think about their journalism? I mean, it's it's definitely a struggle when you look around the American news ecosystem to see how few corporations own so many outlets. And we also have to recognize that um, the way that headlines are written or the way that 24-hour TV channels drive certain narratives, it's because actually, again, we're human, we're emotional. And so what do we click on? What do we like yearn for? It used to be that you would get your newspaper delivered and you would read all the way through. You might start at the cartoons, but you'd kind of be flicking through the Syria coverage as you went through. Now, when you can put into Google whatever you want to search for, and particularly YouTube, you find the thing you love and the algorithm just keeps serving up what you want more of. And you could argue the same is true for a kind of a CNN or some of these other outlets that um, they, they have the metrics, they know what works. And so unfortunately, it's easier because people need money to carry on giving people more of what they want. But as humans, is what we want always the best thing for us? So what do you recommend to individual people to help them solve the problem of disinformation? We have to become really good at developing emotional skepticism. So if you see a piece of information that either makes you really angry or really sad or really scared or makes you immediately want to buy something, to cure something, that means that you have had a visceral reaction to information. And that's when you should say, okay, take a breath. All of the research shows that if we built friction into the system, so for example, if I couldn't retweet something on Twitter until I had read the article, or even I couldn't retweet for two minutes, we would be in a lot better shape than we are. Two months ago, we were being told not to wear masks. Two months ago, we were told if you were under 60, you'd be fine. Like As things are changing, people are getting angry that that information is changing. The best thing I would say most people can do right now is not to share unless it's from a really reputable organization. And even then, there needs to be a caveat, which is like, this is what the New York Times are saying today, but 
It might be might be different next week. And that feels very uncomfortable when it feels like facts are on quicksand. But we have to be realistic. We've never had a virus that has, is, seems to be changing and our, our knowledge about it changes almost on a weekly basis. Can we talk a little bit about the um, disinformation campaign around Bill Gates and vaccines? Can you kind of use that as a case study maybe and and help us understand how it's spread and then how you could help counteract that narrative? So most famously, he gave this TED talk in 2015 where he warned of a pandemic and said we wouldn't be able to cope. So you've got this footage of Bill Gates wandering around a stage with a huge virus behind him. So, you know, exhibit A, you've got that working. You then have got the fact that he's worked very closely with the WHO for years. He's also a well-known face, so it works globally. There's already a lot of anti-Western uh, feeling in many countries that believe that the West is coming in to force mandatory vaccination. So in countries like Pakistan, for example, there's this sense that this is the West, this is about population control of non-white people. So again, you've got this foundation to build off. Um, Bill Gates is now saying he's going to you know, build seven labs to try to create seven different vaccines. So he's very actively involved in something that then you can argue that he's doing this to make money. I would argue that, A, we need to be more honest about the fact these conspiracies are spreading. We need to explain about why conspiracies take hold. And we need to do a better job of explaining what is actually happening because it's these information vacuums that allow these to breed. So absence of transparency is also what causes this. We just need to be better at the way that we talk about these things as opposed to pretending that they're not happening. It always makes me think, though, that we're on the defensive the way you describe that is we have to explain why this is wrong. We have to try to use facts. We have to uh, debunk. And then you're, if you, in a sense, you're already on your back foot. I mean, do we fight by, by defending or do we fight by creating uh, wonderfully powerful stories and narratives that can, that can get across the point that we want to make? Oh, we need wonderful narratives. The problem right now with coronavirus is because there isn't a story of how this started, it's allowing these conspiracies to breed. I mean, if we allow 12 to 18 months of a drip, drip, drip of conspiracies around Bill Gates and vaccines, we could have a situation next year where we only have 35% of the global population who decide to take it. And then we're in trouble. So this is actually critical. And rather than saying, oh, those crazy conspiracists, we need to be like, hang on these messages are really being shared widely. How do we start now to create a pro-vaccine uh, narrative that means that when the vaccine is available, people trust it? And I'd say that's absolutely critical. Do you ever get depressed? Feel like we're overwhelmed and, and it's not going to go ultimately in the right direction? Sometimes it's hard, I'm not going to lie. It's hard looking at this stuff 14 hours a day. But I think we have to recognize that this is going to be a long-term cultural change. And we've seen those changes happen in societies. And one of those is, for example, drink driving. 30 years ago, if I was at a party with you, Charlie, and you were drunk, at the end of the night, I'd be like, oof, hope you got home safely. And maybe the next day I would call and hope you weren't dead. But now, if I saw you walk out of the house, I would have to take the keys away from you because society would shame me for not stopping you. And that has taken 30 years to come to pass, but it was a societal shift. And I think the way that we interact with information as a society will be similar. This stuff matters. And I don't think we are doing enough to teach one another how to talk to one another about this. We say, oh, we need more media literacy training. 
we actually need training in kind of conflict resolution and how do you have difficult conversations with other people who believe different things? Um, and that skill set, I don't think, is really being developed. What gives you hope? So this is a kind of, it seems like an odd answer, but I've been tackling this problem for a long, long time now. And I would argue that through the last three months, there has been a recognition that speech matters, that speech can lead to harmful behaviours and that we need to take it seriously. And I've certainly had, you know, people at dinner parties being like, oh, Claire, whatever. Like, it's just hoaxes. Like, you know, why are you studying this out of everything you could study? And I, I think, I hope that people are now starting to take it seriously. We're seeing the platform step up. We're seeing much more of a conversation about the harmful effects of misinformation. So I, I'm hopeful that this might be a bit of a turning point that as a society, we start having the conversations with each other about what kind of information environment do we want? And where's the kind of, where's the line we want to draw between absolute freedom of expression versus understanding that some sorts of speech might cause harm? You know, I think the public needs to be part of those conversations. These shouldn't be conversations with you know, white men in Silicon Valley. This needs to be a global conversation around speech and the harmful effects of speech. So I, I hope after this horrific time passes that there's also time for some conversations about the role of speech and information um, and the kind of societies that we want. I think that's a lovely place for us to end today's discussion. So thank you so very much for participating. It's really a pleasure to get to chat with you and I learned a tremendous amount. So thank you. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. And a special thanks to Claire Wardle for this enlightening conversation. If you enjoyed listening and would like to hear more, we'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to and rate our podcast. In addition, if you know anyone else who might enjoy our show, please be sure to pass it along. The best thing you can do to help support us is to spread the word. Thanks again for your time and a Big thank you to our production partner, Charts and Leisure. We'll see you in a couple of weeks with another conversation. Until then, please be safe, be strong, and story on. Mm-hmm.